Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today we have a special guest with us, Mr. Jason Vygotsky, who is the CEO of Pedalfast. Now, did I pronounce your last name correctly? I usually ask people, how do you pronounce it? But I didn't. I just went with it. You, you got it right, man. You're one of the few that actually uh, that got it right. So congrats. You, you know, that's probably because I'm Lithuanian and my dad is from Belarus and I have like Russian and Polish and all that stuff. So the skis and all these other names, they, they kind of rely. So on. I don't, I don't know Eastern Europe as well as I should. Uh, <laughs> however, I am Romanian. It's S K Y. Everybody thinks it's Polish. S K I would be Polish. S K Y. Uh, yeah. My, my dad's side of the family is, uh, from Romania. Yeah. Well, Thanks for clarifying because I think people get really confused about the, the skis. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so we were talking earlier before we started, but I, I want to let people know uh, a little more about you. And I, I kind of dove into some of the content that you have out there and it's, it's really good. And I think uh, that you, you uh, explained the business really well, but I don't think people understand or know besides your basketball uh, background, they know like where you grew up and sort of your history. So I want to dive deeper in that. So let's start by telling people where you actually grew up. Where are you from? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, if you would have told my friends that I would be in the cannabis industry back when I was in you know high school, they would said, absolutely not. Probably the last thing ever. Uh, I grew up right, right outside of uh, Philadelphia in Bucks County. 
um, was a, you know, athlete my whole life, played hoops uh, at Pensbury High School and then Bucknell, which is in the, um, in the middle of PA. But Philadelphia sports fan through and through. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I went to the Super Bowl for the first time, saw my Eagles, probably uh, one of the best days of my life. Uh, also one of the worst endings of, of uh, a sports game that I have been at. Um, but yeah, I'm out, I'm out here in Laguna beach now. Um, I've been out in California for five and a half years and, um, you know, I, I miss the East coast. I miss Philly, but uh, then, then it's 72 degrees in February. And I'm like, how much do I really miss Philly? You know? Well, so, I mean, the weather in, in LA has been pretty bad. Uh, this, oh, this winter, I, it's I've still been, way better. Yeah. So I'm, I'm from Philly as well as, as we discussed and uh, we'll talk about the Super Bowl and all that other stuff. But weather-wise, I, I don't miss Philly at all. But this year, like I talked to my parents and they're still in Philly. They still live in the Northeast, the house I grew up in. And uh, we're like, oh, wow. it's freezing cold. It's like 62 degrees or 60 degrees here. And I'm like, it's freezing. And they're like, oh, we got a beautiful winter day. It's 60 degrees and everybody's in shorts and t-shirts. And forget sometimes. It's all like about 60 perspective, degrees. man. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I've actually gotten back to the East Coast a few times in the last couple months, but I, um, I don't get back uh, as much as I should. My parents still live. Uh, they live in Westchester now. My sister lives in, in Westchester, but, um, you know, I've been Philly sports guy, you know, my whole life. So your your parents, uh, you know, stayed there together, and you have siblings uh, growing yep. up, right? Uh, how many siblings? Yeah, I've got one sister. She's like the polar opposite of me. She's like had the same job since she got out of college, and like has you know two perfect kids and a perfect marriage, and uh, she does everything perfectly by the book. Um, I'm I'm real fucked up. <laughs> like <laughs> I I started uh I left the normal like easy course that I could have taken in in the career to to start my own companies when I was 25. Um I I have two amazing kids, uh, actually three amazing kids. Uh one one is my ex-wife's that um you know, he's he's doing great. Uh two little girls who are, are 6 and 8. Um, and, uh, you know, now I'm out here in, in California, um, you know, raising these kids and, and, and doing my thing out here. And my girls are like, Oh dad, I want to go surfing this weekend. I'm like, what planet <laughs> are we on right now? Where I'm teaching my girls how to surf. Um, uh, but yeah, my, my, um, you know, my family is all back East. I'm the, um, I'm the only one, uh, on the West coast. Yeah, me too. Me and my, my my daughter, my 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 ex wife. I we moved here sort of as a family, but then got divorced. And I have an eighteen yeah. year old daughter, so that's uh, yeah. I got the I'm the not like Orange County stereotype, you know. Moved to Orange County, get divorced. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did the same thing. I moved to LA. And got it's divorced. all great. My kids are doing great. Um, and um, you know, I I, I it's it's funny. I, I actually enjoy talking about this because. Um, my leadership style, even when I was younger in basketball and, and definitely building companies, like the more vulnerable you are, the more open you are, the more that you're, you're comfortable talking about the good, bad and the ugly, more so the bad and the ugly, uh, I think allow, it, it brings everybody else's guard down, right? Yeah. And, and the relationships that I've been able to build in business um, and in life is, is basically, you know, centered around, um, you know, that thesis and, and being open and vulnerable and talking about the things that are challenging to talk about. So, 
Uh, I think that's a little bit of Philly in me that I can bring back uh, to the West Coast. Yeah, 100%. And I find that to be a connection. Uh, the East Coast, West Coast is like having the, the, the Philly roots, but bringing those to California, I think that that definitely is a, some sort of advantage. Uh, and you connect to people from the East Coast differently than you do from other places because there's just a it, it's ground. funny man i can like pick out a girl and i'll be like that girl's from the east coast man i can just tell <laughs> right immediately um uh and and guys yeah. i mean and guys like that that guy's that guy's i have cool. a funny i have a funny philly story for a second before we dive into like super Bowl and all that stuff so i was back east for like thanksgiving and i was walking down the street and i was uh uh my buddy owns a restaurant or owned a restaurant actually it just closed down in Philly, but so we got together. We uh, he closed the doors and we smoked the joint. Me, and my other buddy, and then we're walking back. It's like close to one o'clock in the morning, and there's not a lot of people walking the street. And there's a guy walking across from me, and my LA self forgot myself for a second, and I was like, "Hey, how you doing?" Because that's what we do in LA. We acknowledge each other, say, "How you doing?" And the guy's like, "What's up? What?" I was like, oh shit, I forgot. I'm from Philly. You know, just randomly acknowledge a guy that's walking towards me. Thinks you got some uh, some beef. So yeah, I, I got smacked. Yeah, man, it's two different worlds, but I've really <laughs> enjoyed it out here. Um, I'm actually in Northern California right now, but I, I've definitely enjoyed myself out here. And, uh, you know, a little balance of East Coast and West Coast yeah. is probably the best. So I want to I go back to childhood for a second because you're an athlete, right? So, and then you have a sister you said, uh, you know, was, was yeah. a polar opposite of you. So growing up, was there a lot of pressure to succeed and to win and, and to excel? Did you have uh, that from like your Only from or? myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I have always had a strong desire to win. And um, geez, my mom, every single morning before school, Every single morning, I went in two hours before school to, to practice and to do my thing. And before I could drive, she was the one driving me. So, I mean, they definitely supported what I wanted to do to be the best. But when you're a 6'2 Jewish white dude, uh, you know, you got to <laughs> you got to put in the extra work if you want to be a good basketball player. And, um, you know, I definitely think I got every ounce that I could possibly get out of this body. Um, but uh, soccer and basketball was, was my thing. Um, I ended up going to Bucknell on a full scholarship and, um, you know, the relationships that I built, the camaraderie that I built, one of my former teammates of three years is now the head coach of Bucknell just got the job a couple of weeks ago. Um, but all the money that I've raised, uh, or relationships and success that I have, have really come from either basketball relationships or Bucknell relationships uh, that stem from basketball. So sports has indirectly and and sometimes directly influenced my business career, um, you know, successfully uh, being able to to leverage those relationships. Where do you think this drive for success or or, or winning, where do you think it comes from? If it it didn't come directly from like you, you, I deal with a lot of athletes too. Their, you know, their, their parent, their dad, or somebody else was like hard on them or they had a sibling that they wanted to compete with. But where do you think that internal kind of uh, uh, desire uh, to be the best comes from? I've always been scared to fail in the sense that I I would drive myself to, to win at, at all costs. 
And, um, you know, that, like that feeling, once you get a taste of success and what can come from that, like you don't want that to turn the other way. And I think for me, uh, I knew that I had to keep improving at every level to continue to win and win and win. And I just want to, wanted to always put myself in the best position to win. And, and I knew I had to do it by outworking people because um, I wasn't going to do it because I was the tallest or the fastest. Right. Um, so I, I think for me, like I, once I, I became the best, I wanted to stay on top mm. and, um, you know, it, it, it allowed me to, uh, you know, I had, I pushed myself beyond belief. And, and frankly, it was some of the problems that I had in my life coming out of, um college of like oh my god my whole life literally since since fifth grade to my senior year in college everything was about maximizing my basketball career and then that was over and like that was a massive void right and i think athletes go through this you know at, professional athletes have talked about this after their professional careers over what do you do and it wasn't about what i was going to do it was about the I wake up every morning and I had a purpose, right? And and what do you do from there? And that's that's really why I became an entrepreneur. When I first mm-hmm. started working after school, just working a job for somebody else, and, and I made plenty of money and it, was, and it was successful, but I didn't have that drive. I didn't have that excitement. I didn't, I, I wasn't building, there was no journey along with it. It was very transactional. And um, I liked the journey so much. Um, and putting in that work so much that it, until I started building my own companies, I didn't really feel the same type of uh, path, you know, that same yeah. type of, of desire. Um, and, and as soon as I started building my own companies, I, a lot of happiness came back in my life and, um, you know, ultimately some success again. Yeah, I, I usually use sort of a analogy of a push-pull. So when, yeah. when you're, when you're, you're pushing through, when you're working in corporate and it doesn't connect with your journey or your mission, uh, but you're being pulled by the drive of your, your purpose, uh, on this new journey. So it pulls you through that. So you can overcome some yeah. of these obstacles a little bit, uh, easier, I guess, or because you have that purpose. Yeah. Very similar trajectory, you know, working in corporate and all that stuff and finding, you know, my path on that. I, I don't want to like harp on us too long but i'm just curious when you were growing up uh were you like professional athlete was your goal or did you you know no you're a fireman or some of that honestly my goal was to play basketball at the university of pennsylvania like if you're a jewish kid from from outside of philadelphia like you go play ball at penn you know and, um, like that's, that's the path, <laughs> you know, there's really not many paths for you. Like that is the path. And, um, I always wanted to play a pen and I always went down and played at the palestra and I, you know, got some runs in down there and, and followed those teams. And like, that was it for me. And I, I ended up, there was no like realistically maybe play in Europe a little bit, but like. I knew like it wasn't going to be NBA wise, but I wanted to play at Penn. And then when I started to go on my visits and I started to figure out where I actually was going to end up, it turned out that, um, you know, Bucknell was a better team. The Patriot league gave out scholarships where the Ivy league didn't. And I actually thought that, that 
Bucknell had a real chance to, to win. And it was funny. I ended up deciding to go to Bucknell and all my friends were like, Bucknell, is that even division one? Like, who is that? Why are you going there? And then they beat Kansas. They were a 14 seed. They beat the three seed Kansas. And then all my friends go from who is Bucknell to like, dude, you're not going to play there. Like, what are you going there for? (laughs) And, uh, I went on to, um, you know, we went to the NCAA tournament my freshman year. We finished 25th in the country. I ended up playing at Duke, ended up playing at Syracuse, you know, unbelievable experiences that I'll never forget. Um, and, and it worked out really well. And what, what year was work. that? I'm trying to remember. So I graduated college in 09. So my 2006 six, yeah, six, was, you know, probably the best, one of the best mid-major teams in the history of mid-majors was that team. We finished top 25. Yeah. And um, we ended up getting an eight seed. Funny story. We're an eight seed. So we were all pissed because we get the eight seed, right? And you got the tournament going on right now. Um, and, and we're that eight seed. And we're like, damn, that means when we win the first round, we're going to have to pay the one seed, which we'd rather get like a 10 seed than an eight seed. So anyway, we beat Arkansas pretty easily. And uh, we then have to p- play Memphis. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't the, uh, I I forget who the freakazoid was, but they had an athlete that was just like off the charts, just like not even a real person, like jumping all (laughs) over the place. And my, our two guard gets into foul trouble real quick. And coach is like, all right, Bogotsky, you're in and you got him. And that's when we knew like, all right, we're going to be in trouble here. Jason is guarding this guy, but, uh, (laughs) It was a great experience playing in the tournament. Was I'll never forget that. My kids don't believe me, but I, you know, I definitely have to pull out. They yeah, think I because I was on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I went to Temple uh, at, oh, the yeah, height, at the you height at the height of uh, John Chase. So in my in my year when I was well, my my four years when I was going there, uh, I was in. I went to physical therapy school. That was my major. So all I was in the in the school with all the athletes. So in my class was Eddie Jones, Mark oh. Macon. And Aaron McKee, among others. So I got to uh, witness that team play very similar trajectory. They were a great team as well. And some of them became NBA players too. Um, so as you finish school and you get into corporate, what, what, was, uh, what, what was the job or what did you do? Geez, so I first started at like an investment bank and that lasted for six months. I told them to take a hike. Um, you know, out of college, like, you know, every fratty dude, like thinks like, oh my God, I got to be like an investment banker. And and they just don't even know what that means. But, you know, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Um, and, and clearly that was not for me. Um, I then went and, uh, I worked with my dad at wine and liquor distributor in New Jersey that he worked at for 48 years. And I start to learn distribution and brand building and go to market strategy and how do you do all this? And, um, you know, made good money and, and had fun, but like, again, working for somebody else just didn't really do it for me. So, um, I left, um, but that was, the I, first- I, I read somewhere that you also worked for, I'm trying to remember the names summit innovations. Oh, summit? we'll get there. Man. Okay. We'll get there. I, I'm skipping to, uh, all right, go ahead. You so, tell your so, story. So I left and, and I actually, um, started a beef jerky company, believe it or not. There was a guy who comes lawless up. Lawless jerky. Dude, lawless jerky. I'm in a Wegmans <laughs> food store. 
Okay. I'm in a Wegmans food store. People don't know what that is. Wegmans is like <laughs> uh, Whole Foods on crack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's the best place in America. And um, I'm in a Wegmans, but I'm doing like a wine and an order. I'm, I'm still a salesperson. Right. And I got this guy who comes up to me. He goes, hey, man, would you bring my beef jerky into your store? And I'm in a, I'm in a tie. So he thought I was the manager of the store. Uh-huh. I'm like, no, dude, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just taking an order for Wegmans. I'm not beef jerky. But I'm like, hey, man, I know a lot of beer shops. I'm actually in the space. I like jerky. Give me some. I'll try it. Maybe I'll point you in the right direction. I tried it. I thought it was amazing. I called the guy. I met him the next day for lunch. Ended up going in on the company with him. Started this beef jerky company. Five-year run. Ended up selling the company. That sounds great. I messed that thing up every which way you possibly could mess it up. I raised money. I was an idiot. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I knew everything. Went way too wide instead of deep into this thing. And, uh, you know, really learned a lot of lessons in that business. And for what I'm doing now, it was very helpful to be on the brand side. I know the distribution side, but I didn't have the brand perspective. And I don't know that Pedalfast would be as successful as it has been if I didn't understand and really be in and live through on the brand shoes. So this gets even wilder. Okay. So I get out of the beef jerky business. Okay. And my CFO of the beef jerky company at the time, I got introduced through a friend. He lives in Santa Monica. He's like, what are you going to do next? I'm like, I have no clue. He's like, you should look at cannabis. He's like, actually my neighbor has this contract for butane gas. Do you know what butane is? Do I? Yeah. Yes. Butane is in a lighter, right? Yes. The gas. Butane. Propane is in like your, your tank of propane for your barbecue grill. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, little first off, I'm the athlete from the East Coast. I don't know shit about weed. Okay. I don't know anything other than my friends smoked it. I didn't really smoke any of it. I didn't know enough to even know. One of my closest friends was like the biggest stoner on the planet. So like I had to call him and fake like I even knew what I was talking about. Okay. And then I sure as hell didn't know about gas. Like I can't change a light bulb, let alone like moving gas tanks. Like the last thing you would ever think about me doing. But I ended up going out to Colorado and and looking at this business. And I realized that the oil industry within cannabis was just taking off. Vape was getting big. Edibles was getting big. And you need to turn the flour into oil. And at the time, the way to turn flour into oil was using a solvent, butane, propane, ethanol, these gases. And all of the big gas companies weren't looking at cannabis. And we ended up building a national distributor of hazmat gases to the cannabis industry, which was called Summit Innovations. We we built the company, literally put every dollar I had I told, uh, I mean, most people didn't even know. I literally had $100 left in my bank account. My wife at the time, if she would have known that, she would have killed me, right? I got three (laughs) kids. I put everything into my life into this and moved my whole family to Denver to to figure this thing out. Three days after I moved there, I get a call from Kushko Holdings. They buy the company for $16 million. Yeah. That's That's my buddy, Nick. Yeah. Nick, Nick Kavasevich, great guy, calls me. It turns out we played basketball together. Uh, we knew each other from hoops. Still a good friend of mine. And he flies me into Orange County. I, I go down to his place in Corona Del Mar. 
I drive to Laguna Beach and I'm like, holy shit, if I can live here, like this is this this is a far cry from North Philly. Right. This ain't this ain't the Northeast anymore. So uh, I end up I end up moving out there and and I end up being the president of Cushco Holdings and I was I was Nick's partner for three years and um, now I'm running a public company. So if you think I shouldn't have been doing you know the beef jerky business or I had no business <laughs> you know starting my own companies, I definitely had no business running a public company. And, um, you know, had to learn it all on the fly, had to, you know, fake it, do you make it, uh, raised over $150 million, built a, gr- a great company, um, went through a lot of hard times and realized what it's like to cut down a big company. Um, the stock went from, you know, $5 to $8 to $0.05, cents. you know, take a look at your brokerage account going through that while you're tied up like that, that will humble you. Um, so I, I went through a lot there and, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for what Nick did for me and, and he put me on the map and, uh, the whole time at Cushco, which was a packaging and vape company, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get back into the brand side and I wanted to take brands to market and build brands in cannabis. And, uh, I had the idea for pedal fast. I pitched it to Cushco. The board said, no go. We can't touch the plant. I have no interest in doing this. I said, cool. I will catch you all later. I'm going to go do this. Please sign off that you'll let me do it. They said, no problem. And, uh, you know, I told one of my close friends at Cushco at the time, I'm going to say, I said, watch this. His name's Rodrigo. I said, Rodrigo, I'm going to show you what it's like to dual track. Okay. I'm going to Take this company pedal fast and I'm going to leave Cushco and I'm going to make it bigger than Cushco. And they didn't want to do this. And guess what? You know, pedal fast is now five X the size. And, yeah. uh, you know, but I will tell you that Nick gave me the shot. He gave me the network and I wouldn't be where I am without that experience. And, and now the biggest thing I learned and back to the vulnerability and being humble and, 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 and building culture when you start a business, every, I'm thinking, okay, business is about making something for a dollar and selling it for $2, right? Yeah. And you make a dollar. It has a little to do with that, but it has a lot to do with bringing people together, going on a journey to start something, get everybody to be a part of one common goal and working towards that one common goal. And what did that resemble? That resembled my journey with basketball. and. Right. Uh, pedal fast. The thing that I'm most proud about, and we can go into the business however you want, but the thing that I'm most proud about and, and what I really like spending time talking about is culture and what it's like to build a culture in good times, what it's like to build a culture in bad times, what a leader needs to do in a startup to be successful. Um, and how do you get people to follow that journey? Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of analogies to basketball because it's a team sport, right? So you can't do it by yourself and you have to anticipate and everybody has to be aligned with that mission uh, and everybody knows what their position is and you know what their role is uh, to excel in that for the greater good. Uh, I was, I was wondering what was the common challenge that you saw in the industry that made you think, all right, I'm going to create this company that's going to address this challenge. Cause there's so many different cannabis businesses or, you know, for picks and shovel businesses, like, uh, you know, like Kushko, like you mentioned all these different things, but, what what was the opportunity that you noticed like you wanted to address? So when I was talking to all these people about selling them vape cartridges or packaging, 
right? Uh, the fundamentals of building brands wasn't there. Brands were evolving, but they weren't brands. They were products, right? Just think about whatever you probably have some brands around you. Like there's probably a brand on your shirt. There's a brand on your pants. Like there's, when I say Supreme, that means something to you. When I say Burger King, that means something to you, right? And that meaning and that connection, right? I, I just said Burger King and I literally can't now I'm thinking about that have it your way damn commercial that it just stuck in my head. The second I said Burger King, right? It's like that have it your way thing that they're on right now, right? Uh, or the king, whatever that the king burger guy that was yeah. like nobody was connecting to consumers. Yeah. Right? They were products, they weren't brands, they weren't making you feel a certain way. And one of the reasons why they weren't making that connection was there was no infrastructure built in the space to allow that to happen. And one of the biggest things with a brand is the distributor and their field marketing partner and their sales team and their connection with retailers. And nobody was having that connective tissue that I saw when I was building my jerky brand, when I was, when I saw the alcohol brands being built at the alcohol distributor. So I wanted to build the connective tissues to ultimately allow consumers to connect with brands. And that was through, you know, a a, a distributor-like business model. So I, I read, I think, in your marketing material on your website, you call yourself a full-spectrum sales and marketing agency. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, what what does that mean? What does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, what does it mean? I know what full-spectrum means in the plant, even though I don't really subscribe to that terminology. But I'm a I was trying to figure out what, what does it mean? And, that, right, here, and you have an accelerator as well. So like, uh, if you can explain how you put all that together, what do you get? Yeah. What I mean, is that? I mean, that's like some fancy word that an agency probably gave us. Right? <laughs> uh, what it means to me um, is that we're going to take, we're going to take care of you soup and nuts. Um, and they're in cannabis. There's not, you can't just apply the playbook from normal consumer packaged goods. Right. You, there's very, you, you, shit, we can't even be on Instagram, right? Like you can't do the normal stuff to, to drive that connection. But what you can do is get into the store, merchandise yourself perfectly, and then activate through in-store activity like uh, demos or, you know, you, you know, when you go to, uh, you go to a bar and, and it's St. Patrick's Day and the, and the shot girl with Jameson comes up to you and says, yo, do you want to try the new Jameson Black and gives you a shot, Right. Like, well, that's an activation, right? And somebody's paying for that that model to be trained up and do it. So we believe that brands are built in retail and brands are built by, you know, CPG 101. Get it into the store, get it into the best place and be merchandised perfectly, right? And then do an activation that allows the consumer to meet that person. We handle all of that for brands. So if if I'm starting a brand, uh, whatever, let's say a new soft gel company that's specific for, I don't know, sleep, let's say. I know we can't make any claims, but supports uh, making you drowsy, let's say. And, and I come to you with this idea. What's the engagement? What are we, what are we doing together? Okay, first thing, we're going we're gonna to stress test all your entire thesis. Okay, because I can't tell you how many people come to us. I mean, I, I, I think I said it in the, in the last podcast, but I literally had a guy come to me. He's like, dude, I have the greatest idea ever. 
I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Right. How many cannabis, how many stoners come to you with the greatest <laughs> idea ever? Right? So this guy's coming to me. He's got the greatest idea ever. And he calls, he, he calls me to tell me that he started a snap pea, snap peas. Okay. Dehydrated peas infused with THC. Okay. So the first thing that comes to my mind is, is there one person on the planet that wants a dehydrated snap pea with THC in it? Like, no. Okay. I, no, I've never thought of that in my entire life. And is there a market side? So like, there's a lot of people that are, are creating all these things, but there's just no market for it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Number two, are you priced properly? Is you, do you have a value proposition in the market? So we're going to help you stress test that. We're going to help you get talk to retailers. We're going to help you get ready to go into market. When it's time and we feel like you have a value proposition that can win, we're going to take you into the mothership, which is our selling organization. Our sales organization is made up to 30 people in the street in California, uh, about an eight-person team in Arizona, a seven-person team in Massachusetts. We're going to take you into market, get you the placements into stores, and then start to slowly see what the velocity is and if you're going to be able to turn. And once we see starting to have velocity, consumers are picking it up, right? Then we're just going to rinse and repeat, get you into more stores, do more activations. Um, and we've been able to build some of the best brands in the space over the two and a half years um, in California. And now we're starting to have some success as we move across the country. So as a semi-accelerator, once again, it may be marketing talk, I don't know, but it, an accelerator model usually includes an equity stake in a company. Oh. So if somebody comes in, you're saying, I'm going to do all this, but I'm going to take a piece of the success. Is that is that part of your uh, business yeah, strategy we, as well? Yeah, we, we definitely have, uh, we don't take any majority investments, but we'd love mm -hmm. to share the upside by taking right. equity kickers. If we take you from zero to 100,000 a month, I want a kicker. 100,000 to a million, we like a kicker. So we want to share in your upside. And, and I think it's very healthy for both parties to, to share in that. Um, and then, yeah, we'll make investments as well. Um, if we, we know more than anybody, if the, if this is going to be a success, cause we see it at the ground level and it, you know, what the buyers think and what the, uh, what the consumers think, uh, we can make investments into brands as well. So, and you mentioned the cannabis industry is a, a very unique industry. Unlike anything else, we actually have this layer between ourselves and the consumer uh, that we call the bud tender, and they are extremely powerful uh, people in on the retail in the retail space. Are you working with the bud tenders to motivate, inspire, educate them, or are you sort of working side by side? Like how how do you? Well, we we, we want to differentiate our brands by making sure the bud tenders love us most. How do you do that? Right. Once we get them in the store, we need to go in and do two things. Number one, whatever they're smoking tonight. It better be our products because I guarantee you, if they have a good experience tonight with our products, what are they going to tell when you go into the store and they say, what, what should I smoke? Right. And they're going to say, oh, well, I had this last night. It's a new product. It just got here. Boom. Now they try it. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that they have samples at all times, right. Of the products that we're representing. And then number two, we got to educate them about the story. Every product, every founder, every, every brand has its own story. And not only do we want them to be using the products that we have, but we also want to make sure that they understand, you know, the, the what is behind it. 
How do you do that? Is do you do leave behinds? You do training? Do you all of the above? I mean, that's what our that's you know what the army of of people that we do are trained up to do. Uh, We want to get them samples. We want to get them T-shirts. We want to get them hats. We have all of this materials. We get it out throughout the entire state, you know, throughout the country and all of our states to do this at scale. Most people can do it for two, three, five, ten stores. You know, we're doing it across the whole state. In last month alone. We did 700 uh, in-store demos in the state of California. So it's sort of, I'm trying to understand the business model. It's sort of like a traditional agency model in a way, but also has this, uh, I, I kind of, I'm a big music guy. So I kind of equate it to the music industry. They used to have street teams that would go out and oh. really, really, you know, promote the the artists or the records or anything that's coming out it sounds like a very similar model of that we we have three phases we have a sales team that's selling in we have a merchandising team that is making sure what we sold in looks the best it can possibly look and then we have a modeling agency that is doing the brand activation demo activity um, to make sure that consumers then buy the product how do you ultimately measure success a brand um so for us right we want to control what we can control as a distributor like organization our job is to get you into the store our job is to get you looking in the best place in the store and looking your best in that store okay unfortunately it i can't do much more than that now the marketing that the brand does has to bring the consumer in the door to buy that product off the shelf. We can help with some field marketing, right? In our in, a, in the modeling group that we just talked about, but the reality is the brand needs to drive its traffic and get that pull through um, to have success. Uh, do you consult the brands on uh, you know or how to how to do that? Absolutely, uh, marketing. I, mean, I, I think when you look at the talent that we have, we some we have some of the most experienced people in the space, some of the most successful people in the space. Yes. Uh, I can't tell you how to spend your money, but I can certainly give you some advice of, right. of things that we see are working. I mean, I see more brands than probably anybody in the space. You, you already touched on uh, your expansion plans, but what are your expansion plans in the next uh, you know, 12 to 24 months? Is it going into most of the other states? Is it tricky? Is it, is it focusing on the more rec market? Are you focusing on medical? Okay. First things first, I hate vertical integration. Any MSO that comes on here and tells you that they're vertical, they're, they are absolutely lying to you. They, yeah, but you're from Florida. You have no choice, right? Or, fine, but it's going to break down. It, all of the states are going to break down. Okay, The MSOs are, are spitting out a bunch of bullshit. Right, That is now breaking down. And when that breaks down, then you have different tiers and our tier is forming and we're the best at what we do in the tier that we have. So what we needed was to be patient. We need competitive marketplaces. All the MSOs, they don't want competitive marketplace because they want to sell product from point A to point B, right? And it should cost as little as possible in between point A and point B. But in consumer packaged good, there's a lot of marketing and sales that goes in between point A and point B. We are looking for markets that are going from uh, monopolistic by nature, limited license by nature, and evolving into a competitive marketplace. Right? What What are the signs? Prices are dropping. If prices are dropping, that means there's an oversupply and there's more competition. 
right? So we look for that when it starts and recreational is on the horizon, we're probably going to be looking at entering that state. This is, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I ask it because it popped in my head when you were talking about this market, the prices drop and et cetera. Uh, how does the landscape of sort of the this illicit market uh, that's prevalent in California, how does that impact your growth in California and, and other places like that? We sell legal products into legal dispensaries. Mm-hmm. Consumers, unfortunately, have a choice. They can buy legal products from legal dispensaries, or they could buy, uh, I guess, illicit products from illicit dispensaries or just the street. It's more accessible to buy the illegal side. I don't think anybody wakes up and they're like, oh, I'm going to go buy illegal weed today. No, I think they go, oh, shit, I got to drive 45 minutes to my closest dispensary, or I can hit up a guy who's going to be here in four minutes. Right. Which one is the majority of stoners choosing the four minutes? Right. So for me, it all becomes access. If you have access to it, people are going to get it. Prop 64 in California, unfortunately, allowed the cities to opt in or opt out. Right. If they don't opt in, as as far as I'm concerned, they are allowing the illegal market to thrive. They look at it as, oh, we're keeping wreck weed out. I'm sorry. Mr. City Council in Manhattan Beach, people are smoking a lot of weed in Manhattan Beach, right? Mm-hmm. You are actually helping the illicit market and not the illegal market because it's happening no matter what. Um, so for me, it's all about access. If you go to Denver, this is insane. How many dispensaries are in Denver? I don't know. A thousand. 320 <laughs> dispensaries in the city of Denver Metro. You know how yeah. many sp- dispensaries are in California? Operational today. Uh, I don't know the number now. About 750. Yeah. So in Denver Metro, there is no illegal cannabis problem because you can point in any direction and walk four blocks and hit a dispensary, right? In California, I live in Laguna Beach. I got to go to Santa Ana. It's a 40-minute drive. You know, if I didn't have more samples than anybody in the world, that would be a problem for me. But you can get delivery, right? You can get delivery. You can get delivery. I can get delivery 100%. Like it does help and it helps the curve, but a lot of people don't know how to use it. Right. A lot of people, I want to smell it. I want to see it. Right. Delivery, I don't know, is the best mechanism for something that you should be seeing. Yeah. No, you're right. I and in in, in Denver, I, I just came back from there. They still have jars. So you can open it up, you can smell oh, yeah. it. And and in California, we, we don't have any of that stuff. It's all it's all prepackaged. Is there a state? that's doing it right? Like what's the model, the the rest of the country, or maybe there's another country who's doing it. Like this is a good model that other States should look at. Yeah. I I think, I I don't think Massachusetts is doing a bad job. There is a lot of price compression and they gave out uh, a little bit too much cultivation license that will regulate itself. But I like the idea of limiting vertical integration to only three stores. Right. So the brand, the manufacturer can only have three stores. So that allows a little bit of vertical, but not like fully vertical. Um, I think Colorado has done it pretty well. Right. I, I think they have done it pretty well. If, if you say who done it, who has done it the best, I think Colorado has probably done it the best. Yeah, and it's mostly too. because of that access. Yeah. They're the first and two. I, I mean, I like the Pennsylvania model. I know it's medical, 
but there is there is a good model in place. And and the one thing that I like about Pennsylvania, they I think they're the only state that does this. They make the dispensaries or, or the licensees also contribute to research. So part of your instead of tax dollars going to the state for some bullshit, there's a flow of uh, you know, monies that are going for research to the five or six universities that are located there to promote yeah. you know research. So it kind of lifts the entire industry. Yeah, um, I agree. Are there certain categories of products that you know, like uh, you're looking at? Oh, I look. There's another vape product or, or are you looking at innovative products or how do you make those decisions of which uh, kind of products categories to partner with well we make money on revenue right so we have to be strong in flower and vape because between the two that's 75 percent of the market right right so we have a very strong portfolio in flower and vape and then we like to we like to bring innovative founders innovative products innovative form factors we like to come with all the different styles we represent a number of beverages um we we just took on, it's called Hydration Kitchen, infused ice cubes, okay? It comes in a tray and it's water. You put the tray into your freezer. You have infused ice cubes. You throw that into an iced tea, you're, you're, you're in business. Um, so like, cool. I never thought I'd be selling infused ice cubes. It was interesting. My biz dev guy like thinks it's going to change the world. You know, I'm a little bit more skeptical. Uh, we'll see. But, um, you know, Harry Coombs in Massachusetts is in the ice cube game and, and we're going to help support him. That's really cool. Um, what are some of the biggest obstacles that you have to deal with on like a daily basis? Everybody's undercapitalized. Yeah. Nobody has right budgets. Nobody has enough money. Nobody has anything to, to really do this the right way. Uh, that's number one. And, and, and a byproduct of that is people don't pay their bills. Uh, I don't know that it is. I literally had a retailer, a big retailer, monster retailer. Jason, we really appreciate the partnership. I, I need to ask you uh, for something. I'm, okay, cool. What do you need? Um, we would like to move our business to six-month terms. Six-month terms? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, sure. Okay, is, is that, that, that's business? That's That <laughs> sounds like that's just giving you some free product. Because uh, I don't even know if you're going to be around in six months, right? So, like that type of ask by a legitimate player is like that. It makes your head, you know, you scratch your head a little bit, thinking what what the hell's going on here. But uh, we need. It's sad to say it, but really, we need half of the players to go out of business because there is too many players on the field right now, and um, we need that revenue that's coming in to go to half as much because then we can all have you know, real businesses that have some success. Yeah. I th- and you kind of set me up for my next question. I was going to ask you uh, how you actually funded and what your different levels of, uh, of funding were. And then also like as, as a, a secondary question on that, because you just brought it up, this, this landscape that we're in now from capital markets, et cetera, the banks failing, all that stuff. How is that impacting the growth of your business? Because these brands, you know, come and go. Yeah. Um, so we've raised about $10.5 million to date. Uh, we've got a mix of venture capital firms, a couple of friends. Uh, we have one very large strategic partner um, from the alcohol beverage industry. And, um, you know, we have a great mix of strategic and VC and, and, and kind of friends, high net worth. Um, and, um, you know, we've been lucky. Uh, we've been really lucky to have great investor support. Um, 
it comes from you know the earlier conversation of you know once you mess it up so many times like by accident you're gonna get it right you know at some point uh so i think we we've had a little bit of that our culture is great our team we've had very little turnover um founder support um but we have done three rounds to get to that 10 and a half million uh and and definitely are in a good position um how does the current state affect us well from a biz dev perspective we are busier than ever because every brand is cutting their own sales team, cutting their own marketing team and, and looking at an outsourced solution like PedalFast. Uh, from an execution standpoint in market, I mean, it's as hard as I've ever seen any yeah. market in the world. Yeah, and no, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's crazy. Like there are so many companies out there that were so well capitalized and they just blew through their capital so quickly and and thinking that there's an unlimited spigot of funds out there and you kind of saw the writing on the wall when it got shut off then what do you do and uh, they're inflated and bloated so i can definitely see where the value comes in for what you're offering to these companies i know a lot of them personally that you know they have 180 employees i'm like what are you doing with 180 employees when you can automate Going through your where I, I can see where you can automate, I don't know, thirty people jobs with uh, with automation. So it's definitely uh, a way to be able to, you know, see that you bring some tremendous value uh, to the industry by by uh, offering what you're offering for sure. Um, it, it just as a, it, going back to uh, our conversation about the football, uh, I'll take it all the way back to the beginning. You mentioned that it was like going to the Super Bowl was your happiest and uh, and and saddest moment in a in a way. I'm paraphrasing again. I was telling I was watching my daughter and I'm like, you know, you have to go through the pain of being an Eagles fan so you can appreciate the wins because we've gone through so much pain. And I that's how you become a Philly fan. Oh, four four for four, right? Because we got a nice thing going right now, man. But it wasn't like that forever. I mean, I was, I grew up uh, going to the vet and, and I was at all of those NFC championship losses. I was in the 700 level. I, I, I know. Oh, you're, so you're really crazy. <laughs> I know. Um, you know, I, I went through all that, man. I, 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 I was talking to my dad and I'm like, should I go? I'm so busy. You know, do I want to spend the money? Like all of the normal things of like going to the Super Bowl, And then he was like, my dad's what 74 he's like I, I there's been three 74 there's been three you might not get another chance like you go to that game um so i was lucky enough to be in a position to go to the game i met one of my buddies from philly um which you know i don't know if he remembered any of the time that we had in arizona but uh the guy that i've been going to the games with forever and uh, we had a great time we met a lot of great people um it was an experience of a lifetime. I sat in front of these two, oh, this like Midwestern, like very bougie, like Kansas City fan. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to smack this woman's head <laughs> the whole time, like obnoxious as can be. And my buddy is just like seven to ten beers in, just having none of this woman's <laughs> nonsense, and. Um, it was it was definitely worth the price of admission, but it was a it was it was a great time. Yeah. All right. So I have a few questions I ask all my guests. Uh, so I'll start with 
Uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. Oh my God. Best story ever, dude. So <laughs> as I'm going out to Denver, okay, to figure out this gas business, I'm like, all right, I got to figure out this weed thing. And I'm with my buddy. I have my like, hey, I got to do some market research. Let me bring the biggest stoner I know. So I bring my buddy Steve out with me. And I'm like, all right, dude, let's 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 try gummy before we get back on the plane. So get on the plane. This this is amazing. Get on the plane, or we're, we take one. I'm like, dude, this ain't doing anything. Take another, and we're ready to walk down the plane. We're cracking up the whole thing. I'm taking Frontier Airlines from Denver to Philly. Okay, I'm in a middle seat, two next to two larger individuals. All right. And I'm just like, oh my, I start like this, this is going to be terrible. I look back at my buddy. He's maybe eight rows behind me. He's already passed out. Okay. (laughs) I go, oh my God, I'm not going to, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I run off the plane. (laughs) Okay. I run off the plane at the last possible second. I go to the West end attached to the airport and I just go to sleep. Yeah. Well, my buddy wakes up midway through the flight. He was sleeping. He doesn't even know that I ran off the plane. He comes up and he comes up to my seat and he's asking around like, oh my God, where did this dude go? And they're like, oh, that guy ran off the plane like two hours ago. <laughs> like, So anyway, that was, that was my camera. That's, that's the greatest story. I, I love that. I, I ask everybody that, by the way, you're first of all, you made the classic rookie mistake that oh, everybody makes. I was such an amateur, dude. Right. Awesome. And then and then you didn't take our DNA test. I would have told you if you're a poor metabolizer or how much you take and all that stuff. But we'll do that. We'll do that in our time. Get that next we'll time. Out for you. Um, I'm a music guy. So a couple music related questions. Uh, if you had uh, five albums that you can listen to for the next year, it could be songs too. It doesn't have to be the album maze. You can describe it. Like these are the only five that you listen to for the next year. What would they be? And, and I'm going to preface that if somebody asked me, it could change, you know, in an hour or the day. So it's just a moment in time. Okay. Definitely Biggie, right? I'm going any, anything with, with Biggie is, is going to be good, especially if I'm, if I'm smoking a joint. Um, given that I'm from Philly, you got to go boys to men. You know what I mean? Like Motown, Philly, you, you got to go with that. Um, I, I, I grew up like a big Fuji's fan. I would definitely listen to some 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 Fuji's um, today. You know, some Jay Z. Um, I think what else we got on rotation, um, and then maybe I'll go like some classic rock, maybe like Journey or something. There you go. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's your five. Yeah. So you may want to check out an episode that I did on uh, my podcast with a gentleman by the name of Chris Schwartz. I don't know if that name rings a bell or not, but he was the CEO of Rough House Records in Philly. So he signed oh, wow. first Criss Cross, next signing was Cypress Hill, then he signed the Fugees and uh, a whole whole bunch of uh, different bands. Like yeah. that. So Nas was one of his first signings. Oh, yeah, you know, he yeah, went yeah. to Columbia first, but really, really cool, uh, cool interview. Um, do you remember the very first concert you ever attended? Oh man, two really funny ones. Okay, yeah. um, one was like 
when I was super young and my sister was like, I'm going to the Backstreet Boys concert. And like, I ended up at the Backstreet Boys concert, like with my sister and her friends, which. Sure. You blame on your sister. I know you had the poster on the wall. Come on. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm definitely Backstreet over in sync. Okay. Exactly. Uh, but really like on my own Susquehanna bank, Dave Matthews. Remember the Susquehanna bank yeah. center? Oh yeah. Yeah. Dave Matthews over there was uh you know the high school guys who, who thought they were cool wearing Birkenstocks like that was, that was <laughs> <laughs> well what was the last concert you attended? Jeez I haven't been getting out. I mean ever ever since like uh COVID I, I went to uh you know what I went to last? I was in Brooklyn. I went to Justin Bieber in Brooklyn. It was awesome. It was awesome. I can't yeah, I went I went I went to Bieber with my daughter. She was a big yeah, I went to Seaver by myself, dude. So you know. Speaking of boys to men, uh, I just saw boys to men two weeks ago, and they were phenomenal. They were great. They sound amazing. There's only three of them now. They they dropped the fourth one, but they, I they saw. Sound. I went to. Uh, I went to Joe Coy. I yeah, went, I did too at the forum, and I I saw him in OC at the Honda Center, and um, he brought he brought boys to men on at the end. Yeah. Yes, well, he did. I remember. He's a neighbor, actually. I live in Studio City. He lives. In oh, Studio nice! City, that so. dude is hilarious. He's, he's, he's wow, amazing. Um, yeah, and and another Philly connection. I don't know if you know this band or not, but I'm going to see G Love and Special Sauce, and he's a he's a big Philly guy. So definitely, I'm not familiar, but yeah, definitely recommend. I got to hang out, out with you more so you can get me. Yeah, up. let's do it, man, for sure. All right, what what has cannabis meant in your life? <sighs> For me, I mean, it starts with, you know, happiness from a, I found something that, you know, from a business perspective, um, really, really drove me, right? I love the wide open nature of it. Like there's nobody blocking you to doing whatever you want. There's no behemoths in the space Like you can do what you want if you can build it. Um, and I, and I love that right in the food world, you know, how big can you get, you know? So um, it has given me a sense of purpose, um, when I wake up every day. And, and for me, I'm, I am out of my mind. So for me, smoking a joint <laughs> after work is probably the only thing that allows me to settle down and be normal. Um, and, and not think about work and, and not think about, you know, where I got to go with my kids tomorrow and the next day and this and that. So, um, you know, two on the business side, it has, you know, found purpose. And, and on the personal side, it has given me an outlet. I, I rarely, if ever drink, um, you know, I just can't afford to not feel my best. Whereas cannabis, like I feel my best. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I, I can definitely concur with that. All right. Last bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson all over it. Uh, I want, I, Michael Jordan was my guy. Um, I, I was at the tail end of his career, but it was all sports, um, all the trophies. Um, it was, um, all Philadelphia sports flyers, Sixers, Eagles. Phillies was always last for me. I'm not a huge baseball guy, but, uh, I actually, when I was younger, it was more flyers than any of them. flyers and Eagles, you know, um, so it was either Philly sports or, or basketball all over the place. Um, my bed was never made. 
unfortunately, to my mom's <laughs> chagrin. Um, and uh, probably a bunch of basketball shoes all over the place. Super cool. Uh, you, did you uh, connect with uh, Al Iverson in the cannabis space at all? I have. Just curious. Which was awesome. Al Harrington is is definitely somebody that yeah. I connect with on on uh, you know business relationship on a personal basis and and uh, you know we although we haven't done any business with him he's definitely so I'm going to see him on Saturday man there's a big cannabis basketball tournament that I'm coming out of retirement to play in oh you're playing yeah oh, I might have to go play uh, so Al is a friend he was on the podcast too Viola and I I know yeah. Stephen Jackson and uh, Baron yeah. Dave all those guys. When he launched his CBD brand, I was his sciency guy. So I was the you know speaking on on panels with other, all those guys with a uh, with Big Baby. I got a picture. I'll send you oh, that. I'm standing next to these guys. I'm five eight. I'm literally to some of these guys like just above the elbow. So it was, uh, it was fun. Yeah, man. I'm, I I know the feeling. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm like six three, and I'm still that way to most of these guys. Yeah. So, um, uh, Cool. Jason, where can people find out, uh, connect with you, uh, pedal fast or whatever. The best way to connect with, with me is, is via LinkedIn, um, from a business perspective or a personal perspective to reach out, uh, pedal fast, you know, our website, if you're a brand, we're a B2B platform. So consumers, there's nothing really for you there, but if you're a brand and and you want to talk about pedal fast, you know, hit us up on our website, um, or reach out to us on LinkedIn. But, um, those are the, the, the two best channels. Cool, man. I, I really appreciate you joining. Uh, really good to connect. And uh, we should uh, do this offline. And, uh, you know, the uh, Eagles are playing the Rams this year. So that's always an Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. I mean, last year we didn't get any West Coast games. I went to the no. game in Phoenix and then I went to the Super Bowl. So, like, I still haven't gotten to SoFi. So I would. Well, love- you'll, you'll see. It'll, it'll be a fun time. The Eagles fans take over the stadium as usual. So, oh, it's yeah, a fun time. Awesome. Cool, brother. All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate your time. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.